it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. After you finish the episode, make sure to check out a brand new episode of our live music series on YouTube called The Ringer Room. Each month, we feature a new up-and-coming musical artist to play a live set in the Ringer Studios. So far, we've featured artists like Cautious Clay, Mount Joy, and Earth Gang, and we just posted our episode for July showcasing Charlie Bliss. You can check out those videos at youtube.com slash the ringer. David, during NBA free agent madness, 22-year-old Arya Abraham claimed to break a lot of news as did a Reddit user named RD Ambition. What I want to know is, have we reached a dystopia where all our sports news is going to be scooped by teenagers on social media? <laughs> I think there's some sort of like a million monkeys at a million typewriters jokes here. I mean, at some point you can just, you know, like somebody on Reddit is going to seem to be a, is, go, is going to look as if they can see into the future um, because they're just, everybody's out there just like saying random stuff. But hell, I mean, who like you know? Already, ambition turned out to be somewhat connected, and this Abraham kid uh, you may or may not have a few actual sources or some interesting way of perceiving these things. So, yeah, I, I welcome our uh, teenage basement dwelling overlords. My question is: Is this the dystopia, or was the last thing the dystopia? <laughs> <laughs> so, like a lot of dystopias, kind of replacing one another. Uh, when it comes to insiderdom, we are the sources close to the process of media podcasts. This is the press box, a part of the ringer podcast network. Hello, media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of the ringer here. A lot of stuff to get to today. We're going to rerun the final days of NBA free agency. Uh, we're going to talk about Donald Trump's troll summit. We have listener mail plus the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David, I think we got to talk about this Jeffrey Epstein story, which is a crime story and also a media story. Uh, Let us backfill a little bit here. On Monday, the billionaire was charged with sex trafficking and sex trafficking conspiracy. According to the New York Times' write-up of the indictment, Epstein and his employees engaged in a scheme to bring dozens of vulnerable girls, some as young as 14, to his houses dot 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 epstein then engaged in sex acts with the young women during naked massage sessions paying them hundreds of dollars in cash prosecutors said why this is interesting to us david uh beyond being a huge news story is that the u.s attorney jeffrey berman shouted out the assistance of quote some excellent investigative journalists and by that he probably meant julie k brown of the miami herald who published a series back in November that brought the Epstein story back onto the public's radar. Let's listen to Brown on CNN's reliable sources talking about her reporting. They had interviewed uh, dozens of girls who said that they were recruited uh, by him and by others who worked for him to c- go to his, his Bombay Beach mansion under the guise that he w- was hiring them for massages. But those massages were uh, sexual in nature. And these were girls who were 13, 14 and 15 um, who came from poor families, disadvantaged families. And so they, you know, initially uh, went there in hopes of of perhaps get not only getting a, some pocket money, but also he had promised many of them that he was going to uh, b- help them become models or get them into fashion school. Uh, so mm. they felt that this was a way out of their their lives, you know, that, that their deprived lives. Is it worth, David, for a second, just backing up and talking about 
how Brown got this story back onto the radar in the Miami Herald? Yeah, I think so. So what she did was investigate a sweetheart deal that Epstein had cut with prosecutors back in 2008. Uh, Epstein was given immunity from federal charges and as were his potential co-conspirators, which is really strange. And instead, Epstein served 13 months in the Palm Beach County Jail, uh, often leaving for 12 hours a day on work release. So he was given a tiny, tiny sentence instead of a potential giant sentence or even life sentence for these crimes. And what Brown did was identify about 80 women who say they were molested or otherwise sexually abused. This is her writing by Epstein from 2001 to 2006. She was able to interview eight of them and four of them uh, were interviewed on video. And if you've read her pieces in the Miami Herald, just the details are heartrending. Courtney Wilde, one of the women she talked to, said she still had braces on her teeth when she was introduced to Epstein in 2002 at the age of 14. This just seems like a pretty, there are some other media organizations that have been chasing the story that had uh, pulled little pieces of it out, but this just seems like a genuine case of reporter brings a brings a an issue back into the public light and essentially forces action on the behalf of the authorities does it not yeah and in that sense um it's a little bit evocative of the bill cosby situation that it took um Mm. some writing in gawker and then the stand-up routine by Hannibal Burris to make everybody be like, oh yeah, there's that we should why were we why are we not more outraged about this thing that happened or why are we not at the time? Um this is certainly a cause for um an incredible amount of outrage. And um, you know, it it's it, it for whatever reason just sort of got swept under the rug. It's interesting because at least part of Julie K. Brown's stories were about the fact that Alex Acosta was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida uh, who agreed to this deal with Jeffrey Epstein. Acosta is now Trump's Secretary of Labor. And it's kind of an interesting question. I guess Brown would have to be the one to answer this, but whether these stories get written or at least get pursued at this level if Acosta isn't a member of the Trump administration. That's a great question. And we can all agree that this is an outrage that should have been corrected and should have been written about and written about and written about. But I don't know. I I just don't know if it surfaces to this level, if it doesn't have a direct tie to Donald Trump. No, I mean, in a lot of ways it's, it's, it's crazy for a story that's sort of as salacious and outrageous as this one, both the, you know, the accusations and the way it was handled legally the first time, but the hook, you know, to use crash journalistic terms, the hook in a lot of ways was was Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the peg, as it the were. Peg, yeah, and 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 it's not just that Acosta is a member of the administration, but that you know Trump obviously has his own history with, um, with Epstein. So, the uh, New York Times did a profile of Brown, and this is our kind of semi-daily heart-rending reminder about the state of American newspapers. The Times writes the two reporters. Uh, who were pursuing the Epstein story, tried to keep costs down by renting less expensive rooms at Airbnbs, booking low-cost flights, and occasionally not filing expenses. Uh, wow. so, <laughs> so if you're working on a story of great magnitude that's going to win a Polk Award and should win every other journalistic award, sometimes you have to not file your expenses, mm-hmm. perhaps because you're, you're afraid that uh, the people at the newspaper are already strapped uh, to the gills will tell you to go do something else. 
How is that for a reminder of the precarious state of newspapers in the United States right now? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, saddening. I mean, it's or sad, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's and also saddening. Yeah. <laughs> and also saddening. Uh, Acosta, now we get to the performative uh, Trump part of the story, which is there were so many calls for Acosta's resignation that Trump apparently strongly encouraged him to hold a press conference <sighs> and deliver a performance that one Trump pal told Politico was quote Kavanaugh 2.0 you remember when Brett yeah. Kavanaugh went on television uh when his nomination looked at jeopardy Acosta was then and because we're always through the looking glass when it comes to Trump here Acosta during this performative press conference was then asked about the performance let's listen to his answer sources have told me that the president encouraged you to hold this press conference can you speak a little bit about what the president told you ahead of this press conference and whether you're you're here to give a message to the president, are you fighting for your job or, or are you trying to send a message to victims? And so what is the message to victims who say they don't trust you anymore? So uh, first, I'm not about to talk about conversations with the president and I'm not here to send any signal to the president. I think it's important. A lot of questions were raised and I this has reached the point that I think it's important to have a public hearing. I think it's important that these questions be asked and answered. So you see him ducking the question. I, I do want to focus on the question from the reporter, or should I say like six questions piled on top of each other there? Yeah. That, that was like a great how not to ask a question at a press conference. It started with a talk about and then had like four questions, like <laughs> Russian nesting dolls inside one another. Right. Uh, not a way you're going to get a great answer. The other journalistic uh, sidebar here, David, is the case of Vicki Ward and Vanity Fair. Yes. Uh, Vicki Ward has talked about this before. Uh, in a 2015 article in the Daily Beast, but it was resurfaced this week by Mark Tracy in the New York Times because Ward wrote a profile of Epstein in March 2003, and I'm quoting Tracy here. Uh, Ward said she'd collected on-the-record accusations against Mr. Epstein from three women, two of whom said they were victims. Those accusations did not make it into the published version, dot, dot, dot. Uh, Graydon Carter says the accounts did not run because there were not three sources on the record contrary to what ward said what did you make of that whole business i mean far be it for me to impugn the integrity of greg and carter or vanity fair but why not but that feels like that feels like a a rule that you're i mean that is enforced more by your personal biases than by any kind of code of journalistic integrity right i mean it feels like you could find a way to tell that story as, as significant as that story is um regardless of corroborating sources that that literally are impossible to find right i mean it's 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 basically just throwing your hands up at the entire notion of journalism if you had if you have to have three people to corroborate a story that only two people were present for and one of them is the accused yeah i'm i'm not sure if what he's saying is we need three on the record sources for every accusation there or if he's saying we need three on the record sources because these are three women who have accused Epstein. So right. we need each of these people. So I, I don't, I don't think well, Vanity Fair would be quite that stringent. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, like, if that's true, then, then I, then, then sure. I mean, that, that shows that, I mean, they're not as stringent. I was just accusing them of being, but still it's, it's a story. Uh, and we've seen this, we've seen this a lot in the sort of, uh, Me Too era, and I feel like just refer- referring to it in a blanket term is uh, it risks being a little bit dismissive of the individual cases. But the but you know we've seen we've seen outlet after outlet 
or stories of outlet after outlet turning blind eye or, or, or kind of giving up the pursuit of these stories for structural reasons that kind mm-hmm. of disintegrate as soon as you tell, as soon as you make an attempt to tell the story. Right. Yeah. Two th- 2003 being a very, very different time and the bar being seemingly much higher to get those kind of accusations into print. I would say, I would say on the one hand, I believe that. And I think that's true. Um, and then a magazine, let, let me, let me totally triangulate here. One, 2003, everybody operated under different rules about getting this stuff into print mm-hmm. Two, if I'm thinking as Graydon Carter here, you absolutely to accuse somebody of that in print. You got to be right. And you better be sure. You better be mm-hmm. very, very, very sure. And that's, that's tricky business, even under the best circumstances. Number three, and again, I, this is not about Vicky Ward so much as the general phenomenon. When there's a big story that gets broken, there is a 100% chance that journalists will come forward and say, I was this close yeah. to printing it myself, but my editor wouldn't let me. Sure. I got, I got this. I was, I was right there. I was right there. I was right on the doorstep well, and only my feckless editor would, we, we, we saw this with Harvey Weinstein. Yes, of course. Yeah. I think what sets this case apart from maybe some of those other instances of journalists, you know, uh, tweeting ruefully about the situation is that this story actually ran. And it's one thing to say we can't report out the story. We can't run this piece without what X number of sources. But to run any story at all in the w- without touching on that, if if you believe it to be true or really even if you don't, if you have su- if you suspicion that it might be true is telling a different story, right? I mean, it's almost implicitly negating all the rumors that are out there to not touch on that. And I think mm-hmm. that I think that that is the real that is the real like you know contro- controversy here that they would run a story about Epstein at all and and avoid the charges. I mean, you could it'd be one thing to just to to shelve the piece, right? But to but to just shelve a central, I mean, a very significant component to it. I mean, maybe the most central part of it um for you know sourcing issues it just kind of beggars belief you're putting a different truth into the universe yeah essentially yeah and i'm sure again reading carter and wards back and forth the piece i have not read the piece gone back and read the piece but the piece was apparently very critical or pretty critical so i guess there's another argument to say well we've got so much stuff on him in here let's stick with what we can prove I was also kind of entertained by a Kim Masters column. Kim Masters, the, I think, le- semi-legendary slash legendary Hollywood uh, writer. Yeah. She wrote a column in the Hollywood Reporter about her own dealings with Graydon Carter. And this is just, this has nothing to do with Epstein or really anything other than the glory and the uh, extravagance that was 90s magazines. She's talking about being a, a contributing writer of Vanity Fair, and she says, Kim Master says, I remember venting at one point to an editor when I was reporting a particularly contentious story, and he sent me for a spa day on the company. So in the 90s in magazines, this is how we solve problems. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I have a problem with my editor. I'm just going to I'm just going to pay for you to go to the spa and just relax. I, I'm just I, I you just <laughs> just go just go off and be pampered somewhere. This is what we're doing. We don't we don't do that anymore. Any and anybody who's not in journalism listening to this podcast, that does not happen. Uh, you know, the ringer does not send me for a mud mask when I uh have a problem with a story. That is not that is not going on. Has have you ever thought about just asking for the mud bath directly? Is that no. 
I guess I guess it's my fault for uh, not being imaginative enough. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send submissions to at the press box pod where they will be gratefully received. David, the baseball's annual home run derby was Monday. How much of that did you catch? And please be honest. Uh, zero. <laughs> I always like asking you that when there's a big uh, baseball event. Well, the uh, here's what happens in the home run derby. The players match up one-on-one, and whoever hits the most home runs in that round then advances to the next round, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Well, over all of his rounds, the Blue Jays' Vlad Guerrero Jr. hit 91 home runs. The Mets' Pete Alonso hit 57 home runs. But then Alonzo beat Guerrero in the final round to win the home run derby. Right. Okay? That all makes sense. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. It's messed up that the home run derby is decided by the electoral college instead of the popular <laughs> vote. That's Thanks great. to Brian Rice, Eben Altman, and Mike Miller for that one. Uh, Jim Cunningham and Danny Heifetz also note that since Alonzo plays for the Mets, his presence in the home run derby was used to make fun of the Mets. <laughs> for example, Pete Alonzo held the 14 homers. I think the Mets just found a new close. <laughs> anyway, good stuff. We always like Mets jokes around here. Uh, David, if you don't count the very short-lived presidential candidacy of Richard Ojeda, we have our first dropout in the 2020 election. His name is Eric Swalwell, uh, who sort of trolled Biden and Buttigieg at the, during the first debate and is now going to drop out and run for his house seat. It was an extremely overworked Twitter joke to write Swalwell that ends well. <laughs> Thanks to Julia Rowe, Dan Paps, and Betsy uh. Keeley and Alex. By the way, what was your favorite part of the uh, Eric Swalwell campaign? Now that you can look back on it. I mean, I think we'll all be wearing our past the torch t-shirts for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Hashtag past the torch. Yeah, it's, it, it, that will definitely stay in the public consciousness forever. Also enjoyed this tweet uh, that was sent to us by Chris Olson. Eric Swalwell drops out of POTUS race, scrambled now on by other candidates to pick up those 12 votes that are now available. <laughs> That's not nice. That's not nice. <laughs> Kamala Harris also had this uh, great public statement where she said, Eric Swalwell is a great fighter for America. <laughs> it was just the most generic, the candidate as leaving statement you can, you can ever imagine. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> All right, David. Finally, on Monday, there was a flash flood in Washington, D.C. Big topic on Twitter, uh, especially a tweet that showed water seeping into the basement of the White House and forming a pool on the carpet. <laughs> okay. Uh, a lot of great stuff there. Uh, for example, I guess the swamp hasn't been fully drained. <laughs> also, that's impossible. Trump said his White House doesn't leak. <laughs> and my favorite, that's just how Stephen Miller enters the building before taking human form. <laughs> Thanks to Brian Cogsall for that one. <laughs> that All right, on to the notebook dump. I was gone earlier this week, so we didn't get, really get to talk about NBA free agency especially the Kawhi Leonard bit. If you have never read the ringer.com, Kawhi Leonard left Toronto to sign with the Los Angeles Clippers after convincing the Clippers that they had to trade for another superstar, Paul George, to join him in LA. Okay. Read literally any other article on the ringer and it will be about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, First impression. It was a media vacuum. Was it not? Yeah, I mean, everybody listening to this probably knows, but there were three. There were basically three teams in play, as dictated sort of by Kawhi Leonard's preferences. He was either going to stay with the Toronto Raptors, where he played for a year, played for a year, and won the uh, title, 
uh, or go to one of the two Los Angeles teams where he's from Los Angeles. It was either going to be obviously the Lakers or the Clippers. The Lakers uh, have LeBron James and recently acquired another top five player in Anthony Davis and getting Kawhi would make him a super team. He had previously been linked to the Clippers, but their inability to get another superstar made it seem like they were, you know, nominally out of the running. Um, but there was no, nobody was inside enough to actually get a report. There were a number of sports, pseudo sports media figures that um, professed inside knowledge or at least, um, or at least, you know, performed as if they might have inside knowledge. Chris Carter, most notably, the notably the the former, I mean the the Hall of Fame NFL receiver, um, <laughs> and you know, and and he probably did have some some contact with the with the Leonard camp, but I think he was mostly right as it turned out. Yeah, but I but I but and we and what you had was just like this sort of basketball world just hanging on these kind of sporadic tweets and. And reading journalist tweets, not knowing how much to trust them, the answer in that case was almost across the board none. Um, and and just everybody was just waiting, you know, with bated breath to to see what Kawhi Leonard would do. It was really stunning. And then of course he made his decision. And you know, all the employees of the Ringer and every other sports uh, journalistic outlet had to stretch and and get into gear and start start doing their jobs. Um, but it was, you know, it was everybody was caught off guard by the timing, but everybody was utterly shocked by the by the results. Is this just because Leonard has a small, a relatively small number of people around him versus your other NBA superstar slash corporation like LeBron James, like a lot of these guys? I think practically. Yeah, I mean, not not just that, but also the the corporation that you refer to has a journalistic wing, right? I mean, that like basically <laughs> every other superstar on that level has a go to journalist who's very inside, very connected to everybody in the camp. You know, I mean, it's the the stories kind of leak out in any number of ways when you have when you're kind of attached to, to journalists, and that's not you know imputing anyone's integrity to say that. Um, there's also the situation, the issue where, where Kawhi, despite being one of the best players in the league, was really not looked at as a as a um, you know, one of the top three players in the league, let alone one of the top one or two until fairly pretty recently, right? And so he, and he was also in small markets in San Antonio. And I mean, Toronto isn't a small market, but it's a small, relatively small basketball market. Um, and, you know, he he didn't have the same media attache, you know, that that other player, the player like LeBron James might have had. Mm-hmm. Um but then if you want to take the kind of conspiratorial point of view on the whole thing, I mean, there's also the th- there's also just the aspect where like this result was so shocking for just like a lo- from like a logical perspective. You know, our boss, Bill Simmons and Ryan Russillo did a podcast where they just assumed it was going to be the Lakers. But that was just based on sort of intuition. Right. And the, yeah. and the fact that the, the end result went so far again, went, went diametrically opposite, opposed to opposite re- intuition meant that. And again, this is conspiratorial. If you were to make up a tweet, if you were to make up a source, if you were to say, if you were to profess knowledge that you didn't really have, and he had gone to the Lakers or he had stayed with the Raptors, you might have been right, right? It might have <laughs> seemed like more knowledge. It might have seemed like there had been more leaks in the Leonard camp, but because he made the least popular choice, there were very few people out there staking the reputation on that lie. You know, <laughs> that's that's interesting. I just, as you know, because we talk about it all the time, I am fascinated by media vacuums in 2019 absolutely because we we think we know everything now about every about especially about basketball by the way i mean i think we i think we feel we know everything and i think when something 
happens that we don't expect, we're so thrown off guard. And I think that's one of the reasons that celebrity deaths are so big on Twitter. In addition to just being a great moment for pandering, it's because you didn't see it coming most of the time. And so you're just totally shy. Like, like the other night, everybody's tweeting about rip torn. Everybody in my feed has an opinion about rip torn. <laughs> like what, if I, had, if I had 20 years ago, how will the internet go? Well, it will rip torn will die. And every person on earth will have an opinion about that, that or, or a clip to share. something I mean, that would have just surprised me, I think. But I think this is funny because, um, because it was a vacuum. And again, the most knowledgeable people in the NBA who often can see this stuff coming a year in advance. And by the way, kind of did in Kawhi's case, but then sort of talked them out of it and went a different direction. Uh, this doesn't mean, David, that nobody tried to figure out where Kawhi was going. Or <laughs> as our pal Roger Sherman documented, uh, FS1's Chris Broussard declared at one point that the Clippers were out. They were done. They were off the table, uh, which led to this torching from Jay on Ray, his former <laughs> colleague over at Fox. Let's take a listen. Everyone knew nothing, nothing. And they were saying they knew everything. Chris Broussard, who worked at Fox and is the biggest fraud in the history of sports media ever. ESPN kicked him out. Fox kicked him out. I don't know what he's doing now. Saying that the Clippers were out of it for sure and it was down to the Lakers. He knew nothing. They knew nothing. It was all bullshit. And I know it's all bullshit. I get it. All those shows in the daytime first take. And again, I like all those people personally. I like them all. And I understand why they're doing those shows. It works. It gets numbers. People like them. It's entertaining. I'm not criticizing that side of it. I'm just saying if anyone in the history of the world actually takes anything any of the daytime guys say seriously, and I'm including Stephen A in this, by the way. I know Stephen A has a lot of connections, but he said a lot of stuff that was completely 100% false. I'm not... If anyone tells me, oh, you know... Stephen A. said something, or, you know, Max Kellerman said something. No, it's all bullshit. No one knows anything. David, in a world where we can hear cuss words now <laughs> on television, on podcasts, bleeping has become funny. Oh, yeah. Bleeping yeah. is now hilarious. Because, like, why would you bleep anything? <laughs> but it's funnier than if we just heard Jayon Ray say the, say the naughty word. <laughs> yeah. I don't he know why that anything, is. could have said anything, man. I don't know. Yeah, it just it reminds me of, of being a kid and watching like network television. Uh, for his part, here was Chris Broussard on Twitter explaining what happened. What a season they're in for. I can't wait to watch. But I'm catching a lot of hate because on Thursday morning I said the Clippers were out. I own it. It obviously was wrong. But at that point in time, the, the Clippers were essentially out. They weren't getting Kawhi Leonard without a second star and they knew it. Even members of Kawhi's small camp didn't think the Clippers were pulling this off. So this was the defense, and this is something Roger Sherman identified in his piece on The Ringer, is when you're an insider and when you're wrong, you say, I was right at that moment. Right. <laughs> which, is, which is an interesting defense. Like the Clippers, and I think what he's trying to say there, Broussard, is the Clippers at the moment I said they were out didn't think they were going to be able to sign him. You know, whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But he's just trying to say like at a, at a point in the timeline, I was correctly giving you the state of the game, even though ultimately it was totally wrong. That, that's my best defense. What, what, what do you have? Yeah, I mean... I guess it's impossible to disprove that, right? I mean, that's the beauty of making that sort of 
that sort of uh, argument. But I mean, I find it hard to square that circle, right? I mean, and it, 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 theoretically, I, that's a, I think that's a fine argument to make. But I think in this particular case, it seems sort of it seems sort of implausible that the Clippers would have been out and then they were back in because if you. I mean, if you want, obviously, we we don't know what's in Kawhi Leonard's head, and and anyone that has professed to along in this over the past month has been proven wrong. But it does seem like that what would lead him to the Clippers would be, you know, returning to his hometown, and uh, it, it's. I mean, that that would have been number one, and and I don't know how you would have ruled out that team at that far at that point in the process strictly because of their inability to get a player. They were able to get a player. And if that was the scoop, it should have been the Clippers think they're out should have been the tweet. Yes, exactly. And I guess that would have been that would have counted as news. All this feels like it should if if that is in fact if you are actually reporting at that granular a level. Oh, I was just giving you a snapshot in time. All that feels like it's much better served to write after this is over to write. I was just reading like Tim Alberta's thing about, you know, Trump uh, when the Access Hollywood tape came out. Uh-huh. How he sort of pieced together all the reactions and all the hand wringing in Trump world. It feels like it should be in that kind of piece, like you know Jerry, a scene where Jerry West turns to Steve Ballmer and says, "Ah, Steve, I'm sorry, we're out. We we didn't get him, you yeah. know." And then the next day, you know, they get a phone call from Uncle Dennis, and everything's the the opposite. Yes, exactly right. Uh, also, pretty funny. David was the L.A. Times headline: "Totally clips, <laughs> totally space clips." <laughs> That's a, a good pun right there. Jalen Rose, our pal Jalen Rose, said he was 99% confident uh, that Leonard would be signing with the Raptors. Can I come to Jalen's defense? When I worked on Jalen... <laughs> this, this is our producer, Jim, for the <laughs> yeah. record, everybody listening to this. When I worked on Jalen and Jacoby, Jalen told a story where I believe he was waiting for his car outside a hotel party at the valet, and he saw a guy steal his car, and Jalen ran up and opened the door the guy recognized Jalen. He said, oh, you're from the Fab Five. And Jalen said, oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. And Jalen's like, no problem. Let the guy go. Jacoby said, what happened to the guy? He said, oh, yeah, I let him go back into the party. Jacoby said, no way this is true. Jalen said, that story is 199% factual. <laughs> Which means saying 99% for Kawhi means like 50%. He's good. <laughs> It's the Jalen Rose scale. On the Jalen Rose scale. <laughs> yep. Then he was totally within the raw. Yeah, that's uh, that makes that makes perfect sense. Wait, 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 wait. So someone stole your ex's Range Rover. You from walk ballet. over, knock on the window, and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry, Jalen Rose from the Fab Five. I didn't mean to steal your car. That is 199% what happened. David from the Department of the Language of Journalists. Uh, you know how fascinated I am by the Overuse and abuse of the word seminal. Oh, yeah. We, we describe everything on earth as seminal. Uh, I read one of these, uh, the aforementioned NBA free agency columns by Mark Stein that Sam Smith wrote the seminal book, The Jordan Rules. Now, The Jordan Rules is a great book. Is The Jordan Rules a seminal book? Is that, is that, is that the right word we were looking for there? Seminal. Everything has to be seminal in our thing. Our, I think I, it's just come to mean great, right? Yeah. It's it's suddenly become a synonym for great. Anyway, I found that funny. Uh, the other phrase I heard twice this last week, which was interesting, was the term set piece, which referred to both a thing you do in soccer, uh, referencing the uh, Women's World Cup team, 
And Kamala Harris's planned attack on Joe Biden was also called a set piece. A set piece? And <laughs> yeah, a set piece, like it's something that she had planned to do. Isn't that more of like a set shot? Like, is it? I'm trying to, it feels like it feels like that's one that's a one degree off from the right from the right metaphor there. But maybe I'm crazy. Yeah, but uh, but they were both called set piece. It made me it made me long for the uh, the old Bill Sapphire language column in the New York Times magazine because I think he would have done set piece. He would have done it in like four weeks, but it would it would have come out. In other media news of a sort, David, how about Trump's social media summit? Uh, at the White House. Oh my God! Which this this is happening today, Thursday, as we record this, uh, is going to feature such luminaries as Are you ready? Jim Hoft, nice of Gateway Pundit, oh, yeah. Bill Mitchell, the radio guy who turned out to be right and is apparently really into QAnon right now. Uh, Carpe Donctum, <laughs> who is a. <laughs> do you think the Do you think the invite was made out to Carpe Donctum? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just excited to see one of my personal idols included. So There you go. James O'Keefe, Charlie Kirk, Benny Johnson, Ali Alexander, uh, who CNN describes as an activist who attempted to smear Kamala Harris by saying she is not an American black, quote unquote, following the first Democratic debates. Mm. These people are gathering at the White House. And uh, <laughs> to talk about social media, what are we to make of that? What are we to make of the of the summit itself? Yeah, I don't know, man. On the way in here, I was looking at pictures that someone was tweeting about where, where the White House had giant blown up uh, uh, printouts of Trump's Trump's tweets, like mounted onto onto foam core and set up around the White House. Um, to me, that 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 says about all you need to know about the sort of like seriousness of the situation. You know, I mean that they're just like they're decorating it like a fourth grade classroom. Um, I don't know. I don't know, man. I, if if diamond and silk can contribute to making our nation great again, then I guess more power to them. But this feel this feels like a just an attention grab and not much else. What what do you think? We, well, we we know we already knew Trump had had sort of embraced that world. I guess yeah. what would amuse me the most was this Daily Beast piece about all these other people in that world who didn't get invited. This guy from Infowars, Owen Schroyer, uh, said the event was a quote abortion of truth because he wasn't invited. So then. So we talk about there's this kind of galaxy of pro-Trump social media people. And a lot of people got mad because they weren't in the cool group. Yeah. Uh, Laura Loomer wasn't invited. And a senior administration official tells the beast, what benefit would it be to anyone if Laura Loomer were in the same room with the president? Why on earth would we do that? We aren't that stupid. Come on. <laughs> so so we're dr- so didn't Jim Hoff. Didn't she get okay. kicked off of all of her social media anyway? I mean, it's- yeah. Yeah. And that was another thing that that nobody who had been kicked off social media was invited. So Trump's major issue, right, is is access to social media, which he thinks is a conspiracy against conservatives. But none of those people also pro Trump cartoonist Ben Garrison uh, was invited. Uh, People were reminded that he once created an anti-Semitic cartoon uh, about the Rothschilds and other stuff. (laughs) And then his invite was rescinded. So that was too much. What what James O'Keefe did was not too much, but that was too much uh, for Trump. So I just find I just find those little distinctions to be very interesting and very almost inexplicable. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it hard to imagine that Trump had that much say into who was involved and everybody else. I mean, it was it's it's less probably less about the uh, actual 
crimes than just like, you know, instance by instance damage control. Everybody knew this was a, you know, this this was going to end up reflecting poorly on people. I mean, on them anyway. But you know, they're just they're they're doing the best they can over there. When you when you start with a very stupid premise, you're going to get very stupid results. I spent my vacation, David, in Albuquerque. Yeah, beautiful Albuquerque in New Mexico, and I was reading the Albuquerque Journal, which has been, let us say, somewhat hollowed out by the ravages of uh, the time and the uh, our media universe. But one of the things about that is there's all this all these like syndicated columns that I don't get to read normally because oh, yeah. I find it kind of like a return to the old days where being a syndicated columnist was kind of a, kind of a thing. Let me give you a couple of them that amused me. One is called the lighter side. <laughs> no, that is not a cartoon that is being drawn by someone's like grandson at this point. That is an actual <laughs> column with words. This has been running in the journal in Albuquerque ever since I can remember. I mean, it's had an incredible run. It's it's written by a comedian named Argus Hamilton. Do you know who Argus Hamilton is? <laughs> Me neither. That is certainly not, not a real person. That is that, that is a character in a children's mystery series. There is, there's nope. no way that is a real person. <laughs> but it begin the column begins every time. God bless America and how's everybody? That's the that's a standard opening. And then there's some kind of jokey things like uh, President Trump gave a lofty nonpartisan speech at the Lincoln Memorial. On Thursday, a disturbed man ran out of the crowd toward the stage, prompting the Secret Service to surround Trump. The Secret Service said the man was dangerous, scary, and ranting, but it's their job to protect him. And uh, we'll let Jim fill in the rim shot there. That's, this is anyway, this this runs in the paper every day. The Lighter Side by Argus Hamilton. That's that's a syndicated column. I just, as you were speaking, I Googled the lighter side and, and I had to, <laughs> I had to type in the, the lighter side Argus Hamilton to get the, uh, to, to get to the right place. And the first search result that came up in Google, I started reading the column and I was like, okay, these are some pretty like funny dad jokes or whatever, but they all seem really dated. The first thing that came up was a direct link to a, to a column from 2002. I don't, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I guess that shows you the level of, uh, tech, of technological insight we have here. Do we think this is like a, uh, like a, uh, one of those comics that's just kind of running to the beast that old comics are just kind of running over and over again. And They're just, just using kind of touching yeah. up the jokes. Exactly. Yeah. No, that I, was actually, that was actually a line about Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> we just sort of tweak, tweaked up a little bit. There was also, by the way, I, I, I somehow I didn't, I forgot to take a picture of it, but there was also a bridge column, you know, <laughs> just talk about like old school newspapers. There was always a bridge column and the guy who wrote the bridge column had a mind spring email address <laughs> to send him something. I just, Anyway, I love I love going to Albuquerque and reading the paper. Listener mail, David. Yes. God, we got so many uh, so many notes about our segment Fear Rehab, which is devoted to the somewhat mystifying uh, re-embraced by the public of Guy Fieri. Everybody used to hate him. Now everybody loves him. Uh, Zach Silva noted that uh, when people were casting the live action Little Mermaid the other day, remember this was kind of a moment on Twitter? Yeah. Somebody said uh, Fieri should play Ursula. <laughs> Because I guess they both have white hair. Yes. Or, you know, I don't think Ursula's was frosted in quite the same way, but that was a thing. Uh, and Fieri tweeted that with uh, lyrics from Under the Sea. Uh, a whole bunch of people, let me name them Morgan Holzer, Samantha O'Leary, Ducas the Lucas, uh, and others noted that Fieri also tweeted a parody of the opening narration of Law and Order SVU. <laughs> Listen to this. In the culinary justice system, taste-based offenses are considered especially <laughs> heinous. 
In Flavortown, the one dedicated detective who investigates bland food is the leader of an elite squad known as the Sketchy Chef Unit. <laughs> These are guys' stories. Reminder that Law & Order SVU is about sex crimes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Guy Fieri's rehab might have just been canceled. <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not totally sure it wasn't. Yeah. Also, you remember that uh, strain pun headline we did last week on Canada? And the Canadians who build miniature cities. Of course, yeah. Yeah, We the North was the big winner there. Alex Stewart and Brian Richard thought the proper headline should be Micro Canada. That was, <laughs> they both thought that independently, apparently. So, uh, congratulations on making a terrible pun that would have actually been more terrible than the one that was actually used. If only headlines could be sung. Yeah, the future awaits. Yeah, there we go. Uh, time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. <laughs> David's favorite part of the show. Great. Uh, this is from Jeremy Rapanich, who's very good at finding these things. And it's from the Financial Times, David. We haven't had one from the Financial Times. Who knew the Financial Times even did funny headlines? Wow. I had no idea. Um, I'm just going to read you the lead paragraph of the story. I'm going to put some an accent on a few words, which will give you a little bit of a hint here. Spain's National Police, Spain, I'm underlining that word. National police arrested a crew member of a Brazilian Air Force aircraft after customs officers discovered cocaine during a stopover in Seville in an international embarrassment for Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil's law and order president. Okay, so Brazilian aircraft goes to Spain. Cocaine is discovered embarrassing for a Brazilian president. What is the Financial Times's? strained pun headline there might be some rhyming involved here do i need to know the lyrics to eric clapton's cocaine to answer this is that where we're going <laughs> no more more like show tunes um but because it, she, it, she don't fly she don't fly she don't fly cocaine would be yeah. good. uh pretty good um co- show, little, show tunes uh yeah. oh are we doing my fair lady mm. oh, oh um mm-hmm. Is it? Is, uh, this is like this is like the We the North thing. It's like it, I feel like I think I have it, but it might. But I, but I'm scared because it's too simple. Is it just like cocaine in Spain? Uh huh. Cocaine in Spain puts Bolsonaro under strain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's unbelievable! Pretty funny. Cocaine in Spain puts Bolsonaro under strain. I like to imagine the Financial Times just threw that headline up at this point solely to get mentioned on the press box, but I'm sure that's not true. Yeah, somebody uh, somebody toasted some Guinness after uh, coming up with that one. Gave themselves a nice pat on the back. It was found on an aircraft and they didn't use plane. You know, like, shouldn't it have been right. the cocaine in Spain stays mainly on the plane? Yeah. P-L-A-N-E. Or got pulled off of the plane. Like, at that oh, point, yeah, you- that's true. Great question. Feel free to rewrite it at the Press Box Pod. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Chris Almeida is our ace researcher, and Jim Cunningham is our ace producer. More next week. More lukewarm takes on the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. That is certainly not a real person. That is that, that is a character in a children's mystery series. There is, there is no way that is a real person. I'm just going to pay for you to go to the spa and just relax. Yeah, huh. What did you make of that whole business? Just an attention grab and not much else. What, what do you think? Why on earth would we do that? We aren't that stupid. Come on. 
<laughs> so are we oh are we doing my fair lady mm. oh, oh um <laughs> i had a weird reaction it was because i like i just put an entire hot dog in my mouth or something that is 199 percent what happened mm. when you when you start with a very stupid premise you're gonna get very stupid results <laughs> i welcome our uh our uh, uh, teenage basement dwelling overlords. My question is, is this the dystopia or was the last thing the dystopia? <laughs> <laughs> They're doing the best they can over there. How much of that did you catch? And please be honest. Uh, zero. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So someone stole your ex's Range Rover. You from walk ballet. over, knock on the window, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Jalen Rose from the Fab Five. I didn't mean to steal your car. That is 199% what happened. He got out of the car, he gave me some dap, and he blended back into the crowd. 